right. Stand together and recite our verse for the month. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 8.32. Um, yep, that's the right one. Your guys are giving me a look, and I'm like, am I on the wrong one? Uh, okay, you guys can be seated. Okay, so um, this week I borrowed a rock tumbler from a nine-year-old, and I did not ask her permission. Um, I asked her mom's permission, and her mom took it and gave it to me, so technically, I stole a rock tumbler from a nine-year-old. And I did that for you. You're welcome. Seriously, though, I did borrow a rock tumbler. Um, anyone ever used one of these before? No? Okay. This will be my first time using a rock tumbler as well. So here's the idea. You start off with a cool rock. Um, actually, a number of cool rocks. And... Um, there are certain rocks that are, that are better than others, as my daughter would attest to every one of the 900 times she comes home and says to me, Dad, look, I found a cool rock. Um, or when we're at the beach and she's like, Dad, check out this cool rock. Can you put it in your pocket and bring it home? And so our house is already full of uh, cool rocks. Um, but you start off with a rock, and at the beginning, the rock is, well, it's a rock, and it's rough, and it's weirdly shaped, and honestly, it's pretty ugly. Um, unless your name is Marisol Velilla, you probably wouldn't find anything very special about this rock. But that is because it hasn't been tumbled yet. So, what you do is you take the rocks that you have purchased or found um, and you put a handful of them in this rock tumbler. And then you take enough water to pour in and sort of cover the rocks. And then you add grit number one. It's a packet or a canister of grit that kind of looks like metal filings. And then you close the tumbler and there's a, a screw piece that you uh, tighten it in here and you turn it on. And you put it on the tumbler uh, machine, and it just starts spinning. All the rocks inside tumble together with the water and the, uh, the grit. And they're just swirling and bumping around all over the place and hitting each other and mixing with the grit. And you let this process go for five straight days, nonstop. Then, after five days, you open the tumbler. And you pour out the water, which at this point, I've heard, is now like concrete slurry. Um, so under no circumstances should you pour this down the drain. Um, by the way, that will destroy your pipes. That's your friendly PSA if you ever decide to do this. Um, in the YouTube videos that I watched this week, they instructed over and over, do not pour this down the drain. It will destroy your pipes. So at the end of five days, once you clean off the rocks, you have rocks. You have rocks that at this point are just a little bit smoother. But this is only the first step. Then you take the rocks and you put them back in the tumbler. You pour in some more water and then you add grit number two. Grit number two. Then you close the tumbler. You screw it closed, you leave it running, and this time you leave it running for seven days. Seven days. 
After seven days, once again, you open it up, dump the sludge in a safe place like your neighbor's flower bed, then you go and rinse off the rocks, and what do you have at that point? Well, you have kind of cool looking rocks. Sad thing is, it is not done yet. There is still way longer to go. So, take the rocks, put them back in the tumbler, pour in water, and add grit number three. After grit number three, you set it to tumble and you leave it for another week. So at this point, we're up to 18 days, right? 18 days. So, after this next week, you uh, open the tumbler, dump the sludge into your ex's pool when they're not home, rinse off the rocks, and then put them back in the tumbler yet again. So, this is not a hobby for impatient people, all right? This is not something for you if you like instant gratification. So, for the fourth go-round, fourth go-round, you add water, add grit number four, and this time you set it to tumble for 10 days. 10 days. And if you ask an avid tumbler, and I know what you're wondering, yes, there are avid tumblers. Okay, there are YouTube channels with millions of views on this very niche habit. Uh, so they will tell you the longer you tumble it, the better. So at least 10 days. So now, by the end of this process, which has taken at least one full February, and maybe even a full March, the process is finally done. After you have waited patiently for a full month, the reward at the end is something that someone like my daughter would freak out for. A gemstone. Kind of like that on the screen. What used to be just a boring old rock is now a shiny, beautiful gem. I mean, truthfully, it was a gem the entire time. Even at this stage, it is already a gem. But after a month, all of its rough edges and its imperfections are polished off so that it can display at that point what it was always made to be, a smooth gem. Now I can promise you, the process was not smooth or quick for the gem. The process was long, it was arduous. For 30-something days, that gem sat in a tub of sludge with other ugly rocks just tumbling, tumbling and tumbling in grit. While outside the tumbler, life is just moving right along. Days turn into weeks. Activity for everyone else outside the tumbler is much more interesting. But the rocks just tumble and tumble and tumble until they are finally ready to be revealed. Today we are starting a month-long series called Rocks to Riches. And what you will see in this series is that you and I are a lot like these cool rocks. To be sure, God has designed us for something beautiful. We talked in the last series about things like good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. But the process of becoming who we already are is a long, painful, and oftentimes very humbling journey. 
And if we don't give time for God to run us through the humble tumble, and I promise you that it's the last time I will use that joke because it sounds very weird, we will miss what is best for us. Now I can tell you this for sure. Uh, this sermon series is something that I need probably more than any of you. Um, perhaps there are people here or watching who won't get a single thing out of this for themselves. I doubt it, but perhaps there will be people that say, this really wasn't for me. But even if you are one of those people that at the end of this says, I didn't personally get anything out of it, I can tell you at least one thing that all of you will definitely get. And that is a peek behind the curtain of my soul. I am going to open up to you guys in a way that is as transparent as I can be about what I'm currently experiencing, what, what I'm going through in my own heart. Recently I sat down at my computer and I wrote down a list of ways that God has been humbling me. Some are silly examples, uh, meant to be a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but this is what's in my soul. This is uh, some of the things that I wrote on this list. In spite of all my efforts, my church is very small, as you can see. <laughs> Neither the church nor the campus ministry that I lead meet any of the normal standard measurables of success. Now, that, of course, does not have anything to do with you. I love each of you. I just wish there were more of you to love. <laughs> the last two years, I've had to come face-to-face -face with my own weaknesses, failures, and broken ways of thinking and operating. My schedule makes it very difficult to build friendships with anyone, leaving me to rely on God more than I ever have. And then... Not too long ago, the one close, close friend that I did have here abruptly, abruptly cut me out of his life, which made me feel unimportant, worthless, expendable. The last 13 years, I have worked four jobs. And in those jobs, in two of them, I've worked for bosses that have actively pushed me down into the dirt. In another... I worked a job in retail at the mall as a grown adult with multiple master's degrees. And as I did so, I watched as my peers led successful ministries. Now in the current job where I'm working um, on campus, I'm experiencing some things that are making me feel like chopped liver again. The red carpet is currently being laid out for someone else. And my office is given to student workers, a number of other things going on there. I'm nowhere close to being financially free, even as I approach, in a few years, approach 40. I already disliked my car when I bought it. It was a necessity of financial expedience. Now it also looks like a piece of garbage that I'm embarrassed to drive around in. Off the top of my head, I can rattle off the names and stories of people that I went to college with or went to seminary with who are doing things now that I view as far more successful than myself. Two of my roommates are leading uh, large student ministries in large churches. Uh, 
A guy who was in my wedding is now the president of a nationwide recovery addiction ministry. A girl who was in my small group in college is writing books and sitting on conference panels with the likes of women like Jackie Hill Perry. A guy I worked with is the pastor of a megachurch. Two students that I taught in youth group planted a church a couple of years ago with a good friend of mine, and their church plan has exploded in growth. That list goes on and on and on in my mind. I feel like a failure, like a lousy leader, like the reason why this church isn't further along is because of me. But I realized recently, by the grace of God, that perhaps, perhaps that isn't true. I mean, maybe I am a failure. That's, that's to be determined. But perhaps it's not that. Perhaps it is that I am no different than any of the other people that God uses for His perfect plans. Perhaps there are people in the Bible that I can look at as examples of this. Perhaps studying Scripture will show me things like Moses spending 40 years in the desert by himself before he was called to lead the nation of Israel. 40 years. Or Paul spending 17 years training in complete obscurity before he led his first church. Or even Jesus, spending 30 years doing Mary knows what, before he carried out his very short three-year ministry to change history. Perhaps what we will see is that before people become gemstones, they have to be put in a tumbler for way longer than they would ever want and then washed off, and then put back in the tumbler, and then washed off, and then put back in the tumbler, only to then be washed off, and oh yeah, back in the tumbler. In the meantime, Scripture tells us that we must humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, and in due time, He will lift us up. So over the next four weeks, we're going to study four examples of people who got put in the tumbler. And hopefully, we will see in those stories what we ought to be doing as we are being humbled and tumbled. And the other thing we're going to do over the next four weeks is actually tumble these rocks in this tumbler that I stole from a nine-year-old. And so, each Sunday, I will update you on how our cool rocks are doing. Ready to go on that weird journey together? Yeah. All right. So, turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. The first story that we're going to be looking at is the story of Joseph. Now, obviously, this is a very long story spanning over many chapters, and so we won't be able to read all of Joseph's story today. But I encourage you this week in your quiet times to read his full story on your own. And let the Lord teach you even more uh, this week as, as you study this on your own. So today what we'll do is we're going to read some selected passages from uh, Joseph's story in Genesis 37 through 41, um, each of which will be behind me on the screen. Uh, first, we're going to read Genesis 37 in its entirety. 
Genesis 37, 1 through 36. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a, uh, he, he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream of days gone by. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. And so he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me a word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone far away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming up from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, after all, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? 
Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth and mourned for many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now in chapter 39, we'll look at verses 1 through 23. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than than I am, nor has he kept anything back except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he'd left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out in a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant who you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant has treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, and because the Lord was with him, whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now, chapter 40, verses 1 through 8. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. 
And he put them in custody of the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one here to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Then we'll skip down to verses 20 through 23 of chapter 40. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hands. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Chapter 41, verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. In verse 9 through 16, Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. And, oh yeah, a <laughs> uh, young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. And I was restored to my office, and the baker, well, you know, he was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream. There is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it is said that, uh, of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now skip down to verses 37 through 46. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over all my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be better, will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. Then he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus they set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. So, uh, that's a lot of ground to cover. And again, this is just scratching the surface. There's so much more here that we just don't have time to cover in one sermon. 
So again, I encourage you to spend more time this week in this story in your Bible readings. So today what I'm going to do is share with you three observations that God has given me for my own life from this story. And hopefully those observations will be applicable to you as well. So here's point number one. Gems have always been in the rocks, but the rocks have to be tumbled first. Gems have always been in the rocks, but the rocks have to be tumbled first. I'm hoping that throughout this series, you guys will automatically equate the word tumbled with the word humbled so that I can keep my promise to you to not say humble tumble anymore. It sounds like a very weird Christian dance craze, right? We're too spiritual for the electric slide. Over here, we do the humble tumble. <laughs> so, I can't do that to you guys anymore. So do us all a favor together. Let's agree that whenever I say the word tumble, change it in your mind to humble. Maybe for giggles, I'll even refer to this thing that I stole from a nine-year-old as a rock humbler. Anyway, Joseph. So, Joseph's story started with a vision from God. This vision from God is obviously prophetic. This is what we find in chapter 37 in verses 7 through 11, where Joseph tells his brothers and then tells his father about these dreams that he had. Guys, I had this dream where we were all sheaves of wheat, and my sheaf rose up, and all of you bowed down to my sheaf. Of course, his brothers are like, excuse me? And then he tells his second dream, and he says, hey, I, I saw the sun, the moon, I saw 11 stars all bowing down to me. And his dad, even at this point, is like, whoa, whoa, Joe, keep it down, son. What are you talking about? Now, obviously, this is a prophecy from God. This, these prophecies are given to a 17-year-old guy. This young man is going to be the gem of all gems. He is going to be the shiniest rock. And he's even given a coat of many colors to decorate himself in the meantime. And so God is telling the entire family through Joseph's dreams that there is a vision for the future in which Joseph reigns supreme over all of them. However, Joseph clearly is not ready for this vision to be fulfilled in his life. We see a few clues about him in this first chapter that show us he ain't ready. So, uh, for one, we see first that he is dad's favorite, and it's obvious to everyone, Joseph included, and he's got this awesome coat to prove it. This coat of many colors. Now, um, there are some in this uh, church who have gone to seminary or studied um, deeply in Scripture, and they might know that there is debate in the Hebrew over whether the term for coat of many colors actually means coat with long sleeves. But that doesn't sound nearly as fancy, okay? <laughs> a long sleeve coat is not as cool as a coat of many colors. But his dad gives him this coat, and the purpose of this coat, whether it's multicolored or long-sleeved, is to differentiate him from the rest of the brothers. It is clearly a token given to him to say, 
you're my favorite. And it's also saying it to the rest of the brothers. Hey guys, he's my favorite. And they all hate him. Add to this that he is a tattletale. Verse 2, it says that Joseph, at this point, goes to help out his brothers in the pasture. And it says, Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So, the favorite goes out into the field, sees his brothers doing something that is against the rules, and he goes and runs to dad. Dad... All my brothers are being bad. What do you think his brothers felt about him after that? Like, dude, are you kidding me? Joseph, as he is relaying the dreams, we can tell as he's, as he's relaying the dreams to his family, that he is boastful. He's bragging. He, at the very least, if, if he's not boastful and bragging, he is tactless and churlish. Okay? I am sure that at this point he is thinking about these visions and only having one word in mind. Power. I'm going to be in charge of the whole family. My idiot brothers are going to have to bow down to me. Even my parents are going to have me rule over them. He is given dreams, but he is also daydreaming. He's thinking about this big, powerful future. Now, God already knows what the plan is, right? God has always known the plan. We talked about that in the last series. He's, he's already got the plan laid out. And even as a 17-year-old, God is revealing to Joseph that one day, though Joseph doesn't know this yet, everyone but Pharaoh will be bowing down to him. But it is obvious that Joseph is not ready for that vision to be fulfilled in his life. What does God have to do first? He has to humble him. Joseph, at this point in his life, is a very rough, very ugly, very pointy rock, uncomfortable to even have in your hand. Uh, we see another clue here in verse 12. In verse 12, it says that his brothers are pasturing the flocks and Joseph is at home with his dad. That is one of those places where you have to read and ask, why? Why is Joseph at home with his dad? He is 17 years old. Okay, In those days, 17 years old is a fully grown man. This dude should be shepherding too. Yet, what we find is that this guy is so clueless about what's going on in the family business that a few verses later in verse 15, when he goes to look where his brothers are, a stranger finds him wandering in the fields. Where is everybody? Joseph has lived up to this point a life of ease, favoritism, and pampering. Now, that's not to say that he deserves what is about to happen to him. But let's be honest, he kind of deserves it a little bit, right? Kind of feels like, maybe that's not true, okay, literally it's not true. But if we're honest, it kind of feels a little bit like the boy deserves to get thrown into a pit and then sold to the Ishmaelites. This guy is an arrogant little jerk. His own brothers hate him so much they want to kill him. Okay, that goes beyond sibling rivalry. 
All of us have experienced sibling, sibling rivalry. We know what it's like to fight and argue and, 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 and call names and all that. But I don't know, hopefully, if any of us have ever thought, you know what? I am going to literally murder my brother. I hate him. I'm going to kill him. His brothers feel that way. Now, I can't tell you for sure why God gave Joseph the vision for the future when he was so far away from its fulfillment. But perhaps, perhaps it was to give him something to hold on to when he's in the tumbler. Perhaps the promise that God gave him in these dreams became an anchor for Joseph to hold on to in the times that Joseph was discouraged. Because in the middle part of the story, where Joseph is being humbled, it's going to take 13 years. 13 years. It's going to involve barely escaping being murdered, then being sold into slavery, then being falsely accused of sexual assault, then being thrown into prison, and then being forgotten about in prison when he should have gotten out sooner. Buckle up, Joe. It's going to be a rough ride for a long while, buddy. That gives me hope. I don't know what the future holds for me any more than Joseph knew what the future held for him either. God didn't tell Joseph at the time that he was going to be second in command only to Pharaoh. Joseph probably thought, I'm going to be in charge of my family. But there's no way that Joseph could have known that he would be in charge of an entire foreign empire. But he did know that God had something planned for him. I know that God has something planned for me. And I've spent my whole life wondering what that might be. I've spent my whole life living in fear of falling short of what it might be. Always feeling like I'm failing. But maybe I need to stop and realize that God has me in a tumbler. Because as my wife would tell you, I definitely need it. The last two years have been eye-opening for me. The Lord has ripped off the covers of my own heart, and I've had to come face to face with a lot of broken, jagged, ugly things about myself. I've had to take uh, a really honest look in the mirror and see a very rough rock. But I know that that's not what I always will be. And the same is true for each of you. We live in a TikTok generation. People no longer need school or experience or even any discernible talent in order to be influential or to have a platform with which to reach people and lead people. Now all someone needs is a phone and a sense of humor. So it's no wonder why in these current times we, we skip the step of humbly serving in obscurity before ever stepping on a platform. Why train people when they can immediately reach everyone on the internet. We, we want to get to the good stuff. We want to get to the part of the movie in our lives where we're making a difference. When people know who we are. When, when we have people following us. When our impact is being felt. When we are fully healed and walking in wholeness. But God does not cook us in a microwave. 
Food that takes 12 hours to cook always tastes better than something made in 60 seconds. And I know I'm mixing metaphors um, at this point. But if you want God to do something truly amazing in your life, you must accept the fact, I must accept the fact, that it's going to take a while. It's going to take time. We cannot try to rush success. We cannot try to rush making a name for ourselves. We can't try to rush fulfilling whatever dream God has placed on your heart many years ago. We have to accept the truth that we need to go through the tumbler first. And we need to accept also that sometimes there's nothing we can do to speed up the process. This is point number two. Even when the grit works as it should, more grit is often required. Even when the grit works as it should, more grit is often required. I want to say up front before continuing in this point that it is very important that we set our minds always on living righteously. We ought to know and love and obey the Word of God. We ought to be obedient to His commands. So nothing of what I'm about to say is denying that. But we do have to say that we have to stop looking at obedience as a guarantee of an easy path. Because that's what we want obedience to be, right? God, as long as I obey you, things will go well for me, right? We think that as long as we obey, everything will be simple. But I hate to break it to you, obedience is not a formula and it doesn't always equal immediate advancement. Sometimes, even when we obey, which is always the best thing to do, BT dubs, always the best thing, it doesn't change the fact that we still need time in the tumbler. Obedience does not mean the tumbler is not required. In chapters 39 and 40, it seems like God is ready to raise Joseph up. In chapter 39, Joseph experiences this incredible time of blessing from God. He has been sold into slavery, but it says that God is still with him. And so he starts serving the house of this guy, Potiphar. And God's hand of blessing is on Joseph, so much so that he is successful in all that he does. So he gets a promotion, and then another, and then another, and another. He is eventually promoted over everyone in the entire estate. And this was a large estate. Potiphar is an important person in the empire, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. Large estate, Joseph is now promoted over everyone in the house, even over the native Egyptians. He's now the manager of the estate. Potiphar has entrusted the entire control of his estate to Joseph. So we think perhaps this is it, right? Joseph may be thinking, okay, this is it. This is obviously my time. I'm faithful. I'm obedient, even through something as bad as slavery. And then he's even obedient, even more when he's tested by Potiphar's wife. This passage tells us that Joseph is a very handsome dude. So Potiphar's wife seeks to seduce him. And again, remember, Potiphar is a very powerful, influential man in Egypt as the captain of Pharaoh's guard. 
He's in the upper echelon of the empire. So I'm sure that his wife was among the most beautiful women in all of Egypt. And over and over and over, Joseph has to face her advances, knowing that he probably would get away with it if he gave in. But instead, he shows integrity. Instead, he is obedient. Joseph is tested, and he still passes the test. But much to Joseph's surprise, I am sure, because it would be the same for any of us in his position, his reward for his obedience, his reward for his integrity and his faithfulness, is getting falsely accused and sent to prison. When everything seems to be trending up and Joseph is being faithful, God says, I'm sorry, buddy. Sorry. It's time for grit number two. I have even better things planned for you than Potiphar's house. Sometimes, even when we are doing what we're supposed to be doing, even when we're being fully obedient, even when we are participating as well as we can in the process, God knows that we aren't fully formed yet. And we have this idea, again, that as long as I'm being obedient, the process is going to be quick. A plus B equals C. If I obey, I get to the destination faster. And sometimes that might be true. Sometimes the test is going to equal advancement. Sometimes that's the case, but not necessarily. It is not equal. God is the only one who knows when we are ready for what He has for us. And so sometimes, even when we're being obedient, even when we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, God knows it's not time to take us out of the tumbler yet. There's still more rough edges that need to be polished off through very difficult friction. We need to still spend more time in the muddy sludge with all the other rough rocks. Yes, my friends, be obedient, okay? Be faithful. Live righteously. But as you do, be humble. Because you're not obeying in order to receive good things in return. You're obeying because your desire is to be like Christ. And you're obeying because wherever God has you, that is where you will be faithful. Whatever God has you doing, in that you will serve. Be obedient because you trust that God has you exactly where you're supposed to be, among whoever you're supposed to be among, doing whatever you're supposed to be doing. Here's point number three. Gems are still gems before the sludge is washed off. Gems are still gems before the sludge is washed off. Since over the next month, we're going to be tumbling rocks together, I'll ask you this in advance. Let's pretend that we're on the fourth step. We've done steps one through three, and it's now in the final polishing phase which is supposed to be 10 days. So let's say it is day nine of step number four. And at day nine in step number four, the rocks are still tumbling along in the sludge. 
But if we were to stop the tumbler at that point, what would be in there? Gems. Yes, gems. Even at day nine. We're not at day ten yet, but if we open it a day early, we're going to find gems in the sludge. But even when the gems are ready, they don't get revealed until the tumbler owner, or in this case, the tumbler stealer, opens the tumbler at the opportune time. So what am I saying? I'm saying that only God knows when it is time to lift you up. In the meantime, you keep obediently serving in the sludge. Even if you are already a gem right now, keep serving in the sludge. Our theme verse for this series is going to be 1 Peter 5, 6-7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. God is the only one who knows when it is time to exalt us. And He's the one who knows when it is the proper time to humble us. Based on what we learned in our last series, we know that God is the one who's building the Rube Goldberg machine of human history. He is the one who knows how to fine-tune everything so that it works the way that it is supposed to. And so He knows perfectly where we are supposed to fit in the story. So all we can do, all we can do is humble ourselves under His loving leadership, knowing that He always has our best interest at heart. And knowing that He's going to fine-tune our lives perfectly so that we perfectly play our role in the story. And I understand that that is not easy, okay? It is not easy to walk humbly. It is not easy to trust, especially when things are going wrong. And sometimes the way that life is going, we can sit here and very easily and understandably feel like and say, you know what, I know better than God does. I certainly would not have written the story this way. Uh, Lord, if you need any ideas, just ask. I got some great ones that are a lot better than this garbage. But one day, one day, we're going to see everything from his perspective. And we're going to marvel at how perfectly he wrote the story. I repeat again a quote from Tim Keller that I've said so many times, where he said, God doesn't always give us what we ask for but He always gives us what we would ask for if we knew what He knows. Regardless of where you are, keep humbly serving in the sludge. When Joseph was in prison, he was doing what God asked of him. At the end of chapter 39, we see that God was using Joseph in the same way that He used him in Potiphar's house. Look uh, at, at chapter 39, uh, verses 20 through 23. Joseph's master put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love 
and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Even in prison, Joseph was an effective, humble servant. We talk all the time in this church about our oikos, the people that God has put in our lives for us to influence for the gospel. We do not get to decide what our oikos is going to be. God does. God is the one who determines where he's going to put us and who he's going to put us with. And Joseph was placed in this prison. And Joseph saw this prison as his oikos. And he was determined that he was going to be a faithful ambassador of gospel hope even there. Just because you are in a humble, obscure place doesn't mean God isn't using you. If you don't mind, I need to take a video here and turn the camera on myself. Let me, okay, here we go. Say that again. Just because you are in a humble, obscure place doesn't mean God isn't using you. Okay, now I've got that for posterity for myself to play whenever I need to hear it. Just because you're in a humble place doesn't mean God isn't using you. So then we get to chapter 40. Two of Pharaoh's servants, the cupbearer and the baker, have dreams. And Joseph, being used by God, interprets the dreams. So here's Joseph, the cupbearer, and the baker. And they're in the tumbler together. They're in the sludge, and they're in the grit. And as they're tumbling, Joseph is speaking the truth from God. He interprets their dreams, revealing that the cupbearer is going to be restored and the baker is going to be hanging out somewhere else, we'll say. So this is Joseph's moment, right? Finally, he's gotten thrown into prison unfairly and yet he still serves humbly. Then the cupbearer gets out of jail because of him. Time to be revealed as the gemstone he is, right? Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. Even after God uses him in prison, he still has to wait two more years. The cupbearer is restored and goes back to his old job and just plum forgets about Joseph for two years. If I'm in Joseph's position... I'm packing my bags as soon as the cupbearer is restored, like, all right, I did my thing. Let me start saying my goodbyes to everybody. This is obviously the time. Lord, thank you for giving me the interpretation. Thank you for using me in these guys' lives. Man, this has been great. All right, time to move on. And then the prison cell doesn't get unlocked. And the next day comes, and the next day comes, and the next day comes, and weeks turn into months, and months turn into years. And I can guarantee you, Joseph is like, seriously? <laughs> I thought that it was time. The man is obviously a gemstone, but it is only God who knows when to take the gem out of the sludge. 
And so for Joseph, he had to serve humbly in the prison before reigning in the palace. By the time Joseph rises to power in chapter 41, he has at this point spent 13 years in slavery and in prison. God has taken that egotistical 17-year-old and put him in a tumbler for 13 years. And then we get this clue in chapter 41, verse 16, what Joseph looks like after the process. Chapter 41, uh, verse 16, Pharaoh says to him, I've had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give favor, uh, Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph answers with humility. Pharaoh has called him up, cleaned him up, and said, I've heard that you can do this amazing thing that nobody else can do. And Joseph's response is one of humility. It's not me. It's the Lord. This is not Joseph being falsely humble. This is not Joseph putting on a front. This is Joseph, after 13 years of being tumbled, recognizing it's never been about me. It's never been about me. And now, even at my time, and the time has finally come, Joseph, in that moment, still goes, even now, it's not about me. And so he interprets Pharaoh's dreams and he tells Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen in the kingdom. There's going to be famine. There's going to be abundance, and then there's going to be famine, and the abundance is going to be necessary to prepare for the famine. God is giving you a way out before the famine comes. And Pharaoh's like, this is the wisest dude I've ever met. It pleases me to now put you in charge of the entire kingdom. And now Joseph wearing the signet ring of Pharaoh as second in command over one of the largest empires in history. But again, we, we find another clue about the state of his heart. If we look at chapter 41, starting in verse 50, we see Pharaoh's sons. Before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The names of his sons reveal how God has polished him in the tumbler. Now, I'm not saying for any of us that the way that this story has gone is some kind of a, an overlay that we can exactly put over our lives in such a way as to say, if you follow God faithfully, once you're out of the tumbler, he is going to make you rich and powerful and influential over the masses like Joseph. Not what I'm saying. We may never get a palace this side of heaven. We may, in this life, always remain in the prison. But I can guarantee you beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're going to spend eternity in the palace. 
And in the palace, we will rejoice and we will say, like Joseph, God has made me forget all of my hardship. And God has made me fruitful. In the meantime, wherever we find ourselves, whether it's grit one, grit two, grit three, or grit four, or grit 100, however many God decides to give to us because only He knows, let's trust, let's obey, let's be faithful, and let's make the most of the time we have in the sludge. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for challenging us, challenging me with your word. God, thank you that you put us in a tumbler to reveal in us what you created us to be. And Lord, it's hard. It's difficult. It is, at times, humiliating. And Lord, there is so much darkness and, and ugliness inside the tumbler, not knowing when we're going to get out But Lord, help us to hold on to the promises that you gave us. Help us to hold on to the dreams that you put on our hearts, the calling on our lives. God, help us to be faithful servants to our oikos wherever we are right now. God, help us to not make it about us. I'm praying that for me. Help me to never make it about me. Whatever you have planned for the future is perfect. Help me, Lord, to follow you one step at a time in the meantime. Lord, I pray for any person who is here or watching online right now or listening to the podcast. If there's anyone listening who has never trusted you to be in charge of their life, if there's anyone listening who's never come to a place of surrender to the gospel, Lord, I pray that you'd bring them to that place where they recognize that the hope of eternity given through Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection to rescue them from sin and give them an eternity of purpose is far better than anything they're holding on to right now. Let there be eternal hope in the gospel. And if a person is tumbling in the sludge having none of the hope that I'm talking about, let today be the first day that they experience it. God, I pray that as we sing our closing song, Lord, that you would do work in our hearts, that, you, that your spirit would convict us and encourage us and, and speak to us whatever you have for us today. Take these truths from your word and plant them deeply within our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand, we'll close in worship together.